Welcome to the Race and Reading Podcast with Heather and Valise. On Race and Reading, we will discuss topics and themes relevant to the literacy education of Black children. These monthly conversations will range from discussions on how families can get involved in their students' education to the national education practices and policies. We look forward to you joining us monthly for episodes that will include guests and unique tips for teachers and parents. For more information, go to www.literatebecause.com. We are glad to have you join us today where we will be where we will be talking about the opportunity gap, what it is, and how is it different from the achievement gap. Thank you, Valise. Yes, we are once again so happy to have everyone with us for episode three. I just cannot express how excited we are today to have you all with us. So just to get started, for those of you who may not be sure, the achievement gap as opposed to the opportunity gap. So when we're speaking about the achievement gap, we are broadly referring to the disparity in academic performance between groups. And most often, particularly in the United States, when we are speaking of the uh, performance gap between groups, we're speaking to white students and their black and brown um, counterparts. So we're talking about the differences that way. Although the achievement gap can talk about students with disabilities, socioeconomic levels, um, but that's the achievement gap in a nutshell. And when we're talking about the opportunity gap, we're talking about the real differences very often between middle class or upper class and low income schools and by extension students that those schools may serve. So this often accounts for the difference in exposure and resources. And that can be not just the teacher's years of experience. It could be the classroom materials. It could be opportunity for field trips, technology, or a host of other things. Did you have anything, any thoughts um, just in general about the ideas of the difference between the achievement gap and the opportunity gap, Felice? Yeah. The um... If you want to know more about the achievement gap, you can listen to episode two, where Heather and I discuss uh, more on the achievement gap. But the opportunity gap is a better title or name for what's happening in our schools because it, a lot of times, the 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 uh, the assessments that they that we give students, um, it's built into another culture into the dominant culture, which is in here in America, it's the white culture. And so it leaves out our children's culture and it makes them appear that there's a gap in their intelligence, but really it's just the opportunities that they have have had to deal with that dominant culture. Thank you so much for adding those additional uh, thoughts, Valise, to the conversation about the opportunity gap versus the achievement gap, and also for the hat tip back to episode two, where we do delve more into the achievement gap. But what I was thinking about as you were talking was, I know sometimes you and I have tossed this around, and I've also heard others use examples like this, 
that when we think about assessments, for example, and the language in assessments that whether it's intentional or not, they do tend to lean in the direction of experiences that we might align with the dominant culture and not necessarily with the uh, smaller or subcultures within our society. So one example is the idea of the use of the word supper, for example. So if kids are taking an assessment and they uh, encounter the word supper in a paragraph or a sentence that is used on the assessment, there's the chance that the student might not get that answer correct. And once again, it's not because the children don't understand what a supper is because in their household, they could call it dinner, they could call it other things possibly, but it's because for whatever reason, they have not had an opportunity to encounter that particular word used. But back to what you mentioned earlier, that sometimes the problem then becomes people view that as a questioning or an opportunity to question the student's intellectual abilities or the student's vocabulary experience when, yes, it is true that maybe they have not encountered that vocabulary word, but I would also challenge on the other end, there are probably words within subcultures that folks in the dominant culture may not know. And again, that is not necessarily reflective of anyone's intelligence, it's just experience. But when one particular group's experiences are used as sort of the measure for everyone's, we could see how students who may not have had certain experiences or be aware of certain things could uh, experience some deficits, particularly when we think through like assessments and questioning and things that they might encounter in a formal academic setting. Yeah, that that has happened to me um, in my personal life on uh, two accounts that I can rem remember in my early elementary years. Um, the first one was kindergarten and the teacher said, you know, everyone sit on your bottom. And I remember all of the kids, you know, I looked around and everybody was sitting, you know, crisscross applesauce. And so I did, but I had no idea what we called bottom, our private area. And so when she said, sit on your bottom, I was like, oh my God, these people are so nasty. Like what, where, where am I? What's going to happen? I was, I was like afraid. And so when I went home and I told my mom and she was like, oh no, some that they just call that your, your butt, your butt. That that's just your butt. And I was like, oh, okay. Like I remember being afraid in kindergarten of that. So imagine if I, you know, I don't know what my face looked like, but you know, my teacher could have judged me based on me not sitting down. If I didn't, if I wasn't aware enough to look around at everyone else and say, oh, they're sitting. So that means sit down. Um, and then the other um, example was I was in first grade, we were lining up and um, one of my, one of my schoolmates said simple. And I was, and I, I said, what is that? And she was like, simple means it's easy. Like it's easy to do. 
And like everybody in line, like in, in a line that were around us in line were laughing at me. But I hadn't, we, I just hadn't used the word simple. We always said, oh, it's easy. That's easy to do. But um, if, I'm so glad it wasn't on any type of assessment because I would not have had a clue what the word simple meant. And it wasn't that I wasn't smart or my parents didn't talk to me or anything. We, I just didn't know. And the only reason I knew supper was because we watched Little House on the Prairie <laughs> at, at my house. So it that the opportunity gap is real. Absolutely. And while we are having this discussion, I just want to acknowledge the article that we use as mm -hmm. a reference. And that article is from Education Post. So that's educationpost.org. And the article is entitled, Why We Need to Stop Calling It the Achievement Gap, quote unquote. And this article is from 2015, and it's by Kayla Patrick. But I think that even though it's an older article, it's still very relevant, especially as we think through what we are experiencing in our current um, context with COVID. Because another example that she uses in the article is a student who didn't have access to the internet. And we know that so much nowadays is contingent upon one's uh, familiarity with the internet, one's ability to use the internet. So if you are in a home where for whatever reason you don't have access because the neighborhood doesn't get good Wi-Fi or doesn't allow for good hotspots or because your family doesn't have a computer, whatever the case may be, we know that that in and of itself is a limiting opportunity for some of the chances that other students are able to engage in during this current time. Yeah, while you were, where you were just saying that, Heather, it reminded me of, um, I think something we, we've talked about before on our podcast, but the importance of having teachers of different cultures, because if the teacher, um, is of a, a different culture, she will be able to catch some of those things and help the students. Like if he doesn't, in the article, it said the student didn't know where the address bar, he, did, he didn't know the term address bar. So he, um, he wasn't, he wasn't, when somebody said, you know, go to the address bar and type, he, did, he didn't know. And so if maybe his teacher was of his same culture, they will be able to catch some of these things before the assessment or know um, while they're reading their comprehension stories or whatever to explain those things and catch those things before it affects their, their scores on their assessment. That's definitely important. And what that also reminds me of, you know I am a huge fan of the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. And in that book, as well as in the article that we were discussing, they both make mention of the idea that references from the dominant culture will predominate. So assessments, most of the people who are writing the assessments, the people who are critiquing the assessments, even some of the populations that are having an opportunity to uh, test the assessments, are generally 
the dominant culture, which as you said, in America tends to be white. So in that case, we don't see a lot of references to subcultures, whether they could be from the black community, Hispanic community, other communities that might be um, within our country. We just don't see it very often. And that alone, because experience does count so much on some of these assessments, especially as you were mentioning, like the reading comprehension type of assessments, because so much of that is about the context of the words or the sentences and phrases. It's really important that students have an opportunity to engage as much as possible, which again brings up ideas about test creation and how do we get more people who reflect subcultures within our larger culture to be a part of test administration and also creating tests and reviewing tests um, as well as participants in some of the um, studies related to testing. Yes, I think that's very important. And I feel like we are on the cusps of that now in our nation where uh, people are beginning, it's, it's a struggle, but we're beginning to invite more people, not just Black people or Hispanic, but, you know, uh, Southeast Asian and everybody, Native American, especially everybody into these um, areas in education that were held for predominantly white people and it will it will change the education for everyone not just that subculture and definitely not just the main culture but everyone will benefit from from those changes so and i think it it really makes a difference one not just because america is supposed to be um a melting pot or a salad bowl or whatever reference people want to use to discuss like the coming together of different peoples. But I think it just really matters because the frame, as you were saying when you started us off and as we've been discussing societally, when we think about achievement, whether people mean to or not, you put the onus on the students or on the families. So yes, you know, as schools, we're giving you this information and we're testing you on this information, but if you don't do well, then that says more about you than it does about us. And with that type of flawed thinking, when you consistently see students from subcultures within our society who are not doing as well, it can lead people to think that this is some kind of way reflective of the students and not necessarily reflective of the ways that information has been transferred to them or even tested so that we are able to determine what it is that they know and don't know. And the other thing that I really want to bring up in this conversation is this is not to say that information um, from or some of the just general like vocabulary or experiences that are attributed to the dominant culture have to be eliminated. This is not about equity in the sense of um, lowering some to raise up others, but I think from everything that you and I have discussed, it's more about having a degree of parity where we are at least saying we have to acknowledge that the experience of others 
is equally as valuable. And so when we're talking about assessment or when we're talking about classroom instruction or exposure, how do we emphasize and find value in these other cultures in a way that really allows us to highlight not only the beauty of the cultures, but the knowledge base that is found within. Um, I'll never forget reading, and I, I don't remember what book it came from or if this was from a conversation, but um, it's been many years now, where essentially what they did was take an assessment for students who not even necessarily were Black or um, Latinx or anything like that, but just students who lived in maybe like a lower income um, situation and who had to like take the bus or navigate certain neighborhoods. And they created an assessment that was familiar to the experiences of these students. And they gave that assessment to um, like dominant culture students or middle class students who did not have to have those experiences of how do you take the bus or how do you um, like exchange money or have certain conversations and interactions, uh, for example, on at like a, um, a corner grocery store. And when they did this assessment with the middle class students, they did not do as well as the students who were from the lower socioeconomic um, groups. So just going to show what we were essentially saying that when we think about like experience and opportunity, it is not about judging someone's intelligence or someone's capabilities. It is really saying what have their experiences been? And if we are going to assess them, um, especially in like a formal education setting, not only saying, you know, all students, you have to know these dominant culture things in order to be successful, but how do we find a way to create assessments or experiences that will allow students to be successful on these assessments? Agreed that you said that beautifully. So where that takes me is thinking about our literacy tip of the day, which today is for parents. And for parents, you want to do more than just reading uh, with your child um, in the sense of reading the book to them. You want to actually read with them where they are engaging in the experience with you. So for younger readers or for students who might be struggling with fluency in reading that could be decodable books or books that we might think of um, like a dr seuss book where it's going to be pretty much the familiar sight words that we know and a lot of rhyming words that are relatively easy um thinking about easy sight word word books or flashcards with easy words that they can recognize. They also, Scholastic has read with me books where one page has language that's a little more complex for parents to read and then the other page has words that are easier for the students and the children to read. But 
the information is the same. So you might be reading about tigers and the parents are giving you more detailed information and the students are reading the page that just talks a little bit about maybe what the tiger looks like or where the tiger lives. But most of the, the knowledge base is coming from the page that the parent uh, reads. The other thing is, and I know that our podcast is called Race and Reading, but it's okay to give your children other experiences. So I'll give an example that we were taking a family trip to Niagara Falls. And in preparation for that trip, yes, we read a book about Niagara Falls, but guess what? I also had my kids watch some videos on YouTube. And that was perfectly fine because that was another way to help expand their knowledge. We love reading. We love building kids' vocabularies, building their experiences, but we also know that life comes to us in many different forms. So after not only reading, but looking at many videos about Niagara Falls, when we actually went, the kids were so excited because they actually knew some of the things that they were seeing while they were there. So when we visited the museum and they saw the barrels that some people took to go down the falls and they saw the stories posted of the different people who intentionally or unintentionally went down the falls, they had some background knowledge. And so it made the trip that much more meaningful for them. So the point in the story is Yes, we did some of that with reading, but we also built up some of those experiences in other ways. And YouTube videos, movies, TV shows, we can learn from those things. One great way for parents and families to expand the knowledge is have conversations with your children after you engage in those types of um, interactions. So Valise, do you want to move us right on in to our yes. call to action? Yes, ma'am. But first I would like to say, I love those tips. As a parent, I can't wait to get those books uh, read with me, to read with my son. And the next time we go on a family vacation, I am going to play a YouTube video first to make the experience more meaningful for my kid. So thank you for that. Um, we have so much fun doing these podcasts for you all. And we thank each and every listener. If you haven't already, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to know when new episodes drop. We would love if you would like and follow our Facebook and Instagram pages. Just search for Purposeful Literacy and we will show up. For more information on the topics discussed today or other topics, please visit our website at www.literatebecause.com. We're really looking forward to sharing everything we know about literacy with you.